Hey, good morning, everyone. Welcome to church. Um, If you are new here, my name is Matthew. I'm the pastor here uh, on the east side, and I'm so glad you're here. Welcome to Trinity. It's wonderful to be together today on um, Lose an Hour of Sleep Sunday. It's good uh, that you came to church. I mean, what a a good excuse not to come, and here you are instead of being home. So I just wanted to just celebrate Micah Dalton and the incredible job he's done with our music, our worship. Is it just like... one of, the, one of the blessings that I have is I get to come to all the services, and so I get to hear it again and again, and it's so good. Uh, I just feel so led into the presence of God. Thank you, brother. Thank you for everyone who is up here serving um, our church. It's such a gift. Um, I'm going to jump into our text today. We have quite a bit to say. Um, I'm gonna, we're going to be in Romans chapter 4, so if you want to follow along and you have Bibles, uh, we'll be in Romans 4 today. I'm going to begin with verse 1. And then we'll skip around a little bit. What then are we to say was gained by Abraham, our ancestor, according to the flesh? For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was reckoned to him as righteousness. Now to the one who works, wages are not reckoned as a gift, but as something due. But to the one who, without works, trusts him who justifies the ungodly, such faith is reckoned as righteousness. So also David, oh sorry, skipping ahead to verse 13. For the promise that he would inherit the world did not come to Abraham or uh, his descendants through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. If it is the adherents of the law who are to be the heirs, then faith is null. The promise is void. For the law brings wrath, but where there is no law, there is no violation. For uh, for this reason, it depends on faith, in order that the promise may rest on grace and be guaranteed to all of his descendants, not only to the adherents of the law, but also to those who share the faith of Abraham. For he is the father of all of us. As it is written, I have made you the father of many nations in the presence of the God in whom he believed, who gives life to the dead, And calls into existence the things that do not exist. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray together. Lord, we move towards this dense and um, even confusing text with a little bit of um, fear and trembling. Lord, we we just ask that you would help us to, to have eyes that are wide open, ears that are wide open to hear your voice, Jesus, making sense of things that are hard to understand, understanding what the Spirit is behind these words and how you're actually speaking to a deep and fundamental question in all of us, something that all of us come in here this morning carrying. Lord, would you have mercy on us now? Would you bless us with your presence? And Would you lead us in your pathways? We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Um, So this Lent, we are spending the whole season. So we are uh, two weeks into Lent right now. We have four more Sundays of Lent. In five Sundays, we will be sitting here on Easter morning uh, wearing pretty clothes, uh, celebrating that the tomb is empty. And between there and here, we're going to be in this book together of Romans. Uh, Romans, uh, this doesn't necessarily pertain to the sermon directly, but you might 
be confounded a little bit by Romans. If you are not confounded, you probably just haven't read it enough. It's a very, very confusing and difficult book to, to read and to understand. Uh, it is also probably uh, the most important letter in human history. And I know that sounds a little grandiose. It's at least in the top tier, not only because how historically significant it is. I mean, you have the Apostle Paul, who is one of the greatest influencers in human history, writing a letter to a church that is in the, the heart of the world's empire at that time, the Ro- uh, Rome. So that in itself is very significant. But it's the ideas of Romans that actually have most shaped human civilization. It's the ideas of Romans that were read by um, a, a monk in the 16th century in Germany, Martin Luther, and how he read the ideas of Romans sparked the Protestant Reformation, which counterintuitively gave way to the Enlightenment and to modernism and to so much that we just take for, for granted now as far as how we understand ourselves and radical individualism and all these things. They end up coming back to at least a reading of these ideas. And so this is an incredibly influential book. Uh, and yet that probably is, is only interesting to, to six of us in here. And so the question is, is like, what is, what is its place in our lives? What is it answering or speaking to? today for you and me. Um, The context of of Rome, the church in Rome, uh, is actually really interesting and I think really relatable. Rome was a very pluralistic, also a deeply religious and a deeply intellectual city. When I say religious, I mean that there were idols and, and temples everywhere, and yet it was also a very sophisticated city, and there were many, many different ways that people were engaging with transcendent ideas. And in that sense, very relatable to the world that we live in today. And one of the things that had happened in the Roman church is that there was division that was happening within the church body itself along racial lines, where the Jews, who kind of like had claim to this thing first, and the Gentiles, who had been brought in later, they had... They had different ways of understanding certain things, and it was creating lines between them. There were political realities. There was all sorts of stuff feeding into this, which I don't have time to get into. But it all makes sense when you understand. It all backs up this idea that what was going on is you had two people that had tons in common and yet had more that they could see their differences more than anything else. And because of this, Paul writes a letter to the Roman church, and he says, you need to understand that because of Jesus, because of the gospel, we live on equal footing with one another. We receive and accept one another as equals. There is no greater or, or better than the other. Actually, we are all one. This is the intention behind Romans. If you read Romans and you think first and foremost that Paul's big desire in writing it was to get all of his doctrine downloaded on a piece of paper, you're going to miss the pastoral intention behind every sentence in this book. Paul is trying to communicate to people that you have Uh, something available through the gospel, through Jesus. You have something available that actually makes it so that you can receive and accept and love people all around you, that you can move towards one another in unity, that we don't have to create division uh, with one another. And this is why he writes the letter, and this is how we can actually let it come into our own lives today, because we live in a time that is constantly telling us what is different from us to other people and polarizing us to extremes, and I mean, never more so than this year. I mean, even this last week, if you follow the presidential primary at all, people who would count themselves to be sort of kin, peers, like ideological friends to one another, tearing each other to shreds this week because of small ideological differences. Not that there aren't real differences in the world. There are. And they need to be, you know, as Brene Brown would say, rumbled over. They need to be questioned and debated. Um, Reconciliation requires restitution. It actually requires real work. And yet Paul's desire in this, and my desire for us, even as we enter into a very divisive year, 
is that we would understand that there is something available to us in the gospel, something available to us in the, the message of Jesus and his life and his death and his resurrection that actually makes it possible for us to live at unity with in this room and outside this room with those around us. Um, one of the main words for the book of Romans, a, a big word that shows up again and again, I think I just read it several times in the passage we read, is the word righteousness. Righteousness is kind of a big church word. We only use it when we're talking about the Bible. No one in here was like this week ordering a bagel and thinking about righteousness. Uh, actually, though, righteousness is so fundamental to actually how we understand ourselves. Something, someone told me years ago, something that I thought this was helpful. They said, righteousness, when you think of righteousness, think of like a sense of rightness. That is like the sense of like belonging, that like I fit, that things are as they are meant to be. In fact, the word righteousness is, is actually related to the, the Greek word for justice. That's true in the Hebrew as well, by the way, which is pretty interesting. So it's the sense like things are as they are meant to be. Things are balanced. Things are even. Things are good. Things are, are square with how it should be. Righteousness is therefore the word or the idea that speaks to the deep longing and angst in all of us. Like, of do I belong? Am I okay? Do I fit? Is it all right? Those sort of deep, profound, fundamental questions that all of us are asking. I have um, four kids, a bunch of you know that. Um, two of my girls, my two girls are older. They're kind of entering their teen, preteen years. And watching them especially go, go through adolescence again has just brought back all the angst of adolescence just back into my, like, in living color, like right in front of me. Um, and I know that some of you managed to just skim across the water of your teen years, and good for you. But most of us, most of us uh, struggled mightily through those years and actually in the process picked up patterns and habits that we still are trying to shake today, ways of surviving and coping because the energy around do I fit and will I have, will people pay attention to me, but only the right kind of attention. The wrong kind of attention is worse than being ignored. But like, it, can I make it in this? Can I be okay? Like, and it's so hard because your internal world is going through chaos and then the internal world of everyone around you is going through chaos and you're all trying to survive with one another. And, and yet like this deep question like, am I okay? Do I belong? Do I fit? One of the ways that people try to answer this question, and I remember this, and I could never live into it. I wasn't ever good at it. But people who just adopt sort of a cool persona, you know, coolness is just this like detachment, this indifference, this ability to disappear. Like, I'm not really bothered by this. It doesn't really impact me. And yet the, the, the underlying reality of coolness is, is always fear. It's always insecurity. I know this as a pastor because the coolest people I've ever met are the most deeply insecure people I've ever talked to. And it's totally true. It's just, it's just a mask. It's just a way of surviving. It's a way of trying, trying to, to appear that you have it under control when actually you feel wildly vulnerable and afraid just like the rest of us. And so what we do because of this, because of the shame, I mean, that's really what's at the heart of this. When we talk about righteousness, we're not merely talking about guilt. Guilt is easily taken care of. Guilt is I did something wrong and there I, I need to be forgiven and I can move forward. But shame is I am wrong. It's not that I've done something bad. It's that I am bad. And because I am bad, I don't fit. I don't have a home. I don't have a seat at the table. I'm not wanted as I really am. I have to be something else. I have to pretend to be someone else. And unless I am that person, unless I can muster up the strength to put forward a presentation, I'm not going to fit in a way that, that's going to feel safe to me. And righteousness speaks to that question. It speaks to that longing. 
It speaks to the shame that we, that we fight. Because of shame, we divide ourselves. Because of shame, we make ourselves feel better than other people. Shame is what's at the root of white supremacy. Shame is what's at the root of racism. I can't reconcile myself to the things that have happened in the past and the way that I continue to be complicit in them, so I get defensive, so I double down, so I draw a line, so I make judgments about people, so I assume the worst, so I fill in gaps with distrust instead of trust. And all of that comes from places of insecurity in myself. And so Paul, when he's talking about righteousness, he is not talking about some Bible word that has nothing to do with you. He's talking about what is the word, what is the reality, what is the defining thing that actually could make sense of your place in the story, your place in this world that could give you the bearing you need to be the kind of person you want to be. And so this is what we're looking at in this season of Lent because this is actually what gets churned up in us as we look at our sin. Do I fit? Is it okay? Will I be all right? Now, in our text today, with that sort of as a background, as a backstory, um, we're looking at this story a bit about Abraham. And I am sure that a number of us know who Abraham is, but I'm sure there's a number of us who don't know who Abraham is. And that's awesome. I'm really glad you're here. Not all of us grew up with flannel graphs. Thanks be to God. Uh, And so I just want to give a little bit of a sense of who Abraham is because we need to understand as we look at this story, as we look at this passage, that what Paul is doing is he's, he's using Abraham as a model for you and me about how to walk through the world. Now, Abraham, is a, is a, he's a big deal in your Bibles. If you go back to the beginning of Genesis, chapter 12, we, we just read it at the beginning of the service, we're introduced to this guy named Abraham, um, sort of an, uh, like a, just a regular old guy. Abraham is an old man at this point, and he has an old wife. She's postmenopausal. And the Lord says to Abraham, I'm going to give you a son, an heir, and through your heir, I'm going to make you a great nation, and your descendants will be greater than the number of stars in the sky. Now, the question automatically that we would ask then is like, well, what's so special about Abraham? Why does he get that? What's so great about him? And here's the kicker. Nothing, nothing is greater about Abraham. He is not a good man in the sense of like, he's not Mother Teresa. He's not Mahat Gandhi. He's, he's a complicated person. He's, he, in one hand, he's heroic and brave. He's loyal. Uh, he's, he's a risk taker. He's also deceptive. He's fearful. He has blood on his hands. He's a complicated person. He takes matters into his own hands when he should hold back and trust God. He, he, he makes mistakes along the way. Even after this moment, he continues to make mistakes. His family is a, is a train wreck. They belong on Jerry Springer. The whole patriarchal family is, is one mistake after another after another. And that's the whole point. That God did not choose Abraham because he was a good person. He just chose him. God wanted to, from the very beginning to make it clear, your sense of rightness and belonging is not because of your pedigree or your behavior or your obedience. It is simply because I chose you. I put my love upon you. So we look at our text today. And the first thing Paul is doing is he's sort of comparing one way of understanding yourself in the world and then another way. So the first thing I'll say is this based on our text, that you and I are not living in an Abraham story. That that phrase, Abraham story, comes from Eugene Peterson's translation of this. He has a book called The Message, which is like sort of a loose translation uh, of the Bible. And it's worth having around as a way of like making sense of complicated texts, things that don't always make sense. But the, uh, the idea of the Abraham story, I just took it. I'm just totally taking it from him. You can just replace Abraham with your name. 
So just put your name. Put, put Jill or Sarah or Kathy or Grayson or Matthew. Put your name in there. And, and the whole point is we are not living in a story in which who? Abraham or myself or you are the center, the protagonist, the, the, the reason that the whole story holds together. That ultimately the story is not about me and my needs and my desires and my greatness or my badness. It's not about Abraham. It's about something else entirely. In fact, the way that Peterson translates um, one of the verses in, in, in Romans 4 is this. He says, Abraham entered into what God was doing for him, and that was the turning point. He trusted God to set him right instead of trying to be right in his own mind. And so what, what Paul is doing is he's laying before you and me, Abraham, and he's saying, here's what Abraham got right. He made a lot of mistakes. Here's what he got right. He understood that the story was not about him, but that God was coming to him and saying, I'm going to do something for everyone. I'm going to do it through you. And he just placed himself in there. He understood that he was in a story that was larger than him, that it wasn't ultimately about him getting what he wants in life. It wasn't ultimately about him having the kind of life that he thought he deserved. But that's, what this was, that's not what this was about. He was just a part of a bigger thing. I read a, a year or so ago a book by Richard Rohr, who I um, loosely recommend. And that is like, you know, chew on the meat, spit out the bones sort of stuff. But he, uh, he has a book called The Return of Adam, which is on initiation rites, which is something we don't talk about at all here, but something that a lot of the world does. In fact, indigenous peoples and, and tribal peoples, people from all over the world continue to practice initiation rites. And, and Rohr lays out the, what he calls the five promises of initiation. These are the things that initiation rites are meant to teach us. And maybe the reason this will feel so foreign is because we aren't initiated as a people. Um, but this is what he says the five promises are. The first is this. Life is hard. Second, you are not that important. Third, your life is not about you. Fourth, you are not in control. And fifth, you are going to die. Right? Those are good. That's some good Lenten words right there. (laughs) Now, I want you to think about how much energy you have spent your whole life resisting that. Right? I spent all my life resisting that. Life is not hard, but it, life is hard, but it doesn't have to be. Right? I know I'm going to die, but I'm going to pretend that I'm actually not. I'm not going to be mindful of it. I'm, I'm going to be somewhat reckless with my time. I'm, I'm going to live as though some, there's an invincibility to me. You know, I, I, I'm not in control, but I'm going to constantly try to find a way to control my life regardless. And the thing I love so much about these, and I return to them, they hit me. I mean, they just, they, they, everyone feels like a punch because it is, it is speaking to a reality that is decentralizing me and recentering something else. That ultimately I find myself in a large thing that I am not the center of. And that I'm not going to have the life that I thought I should have necessarily. And that that's okay because the world doesn't exist for me. This is why Paul goes on to speak about wages versus gift. Wages is this idea of like getting what I deserve. I put in my time, I work the hours, you pay me for it, and that's how wages work. And he's like, no, wages don't fit in the conversation at all because nobody gets what they deserve. The thing that God is giving to us is a gift. It's not earned. It's not credited. It is something that comes to us by grace. You see, in the end... 
I can either choose to view myself as a person that's living in the midst of a big thing God is doing for everyone, or I can choose to view myself as a person for whom God exists and is acting. And that's a big difference. But we are not living in an Abraham story. We are not living in a Matthew story. Thanks be to God. The purpose of the sun rising today is not me. There's something greater going on. We are living, it's the second point, in a God story. Paul is using Abraham to show us that the reason that Abraham is put forward as a model for our faith, the reason he's called our father. Some of you did grow up in Sunday school singing about Father Abraham. He had many sons, and even the girls said that they are one of the sons, and it wasn't really equal in that sense at all. But we all said we're children of Abraham uh, because, Paul says, because he is the model and the father of what it means to have um, faith, that God can do an impossible thing. That the story that we're in is about God doing impossible things through us. And putting my trust in that. He understood that what was happening, what he was being invited into, is something that God was going to have to do for him and through him for the world. Um, It's important to realize that I'm not living in a story that is ultimately about my needs and desires. But I am in a story about what God is doing for the world. And I am part of that world. So when I say God is doing something for the world, like put myself in, put, your, put yourself there. I am part of that world and I am part of the people through whom God is doing that. But he is the protagonist. Eugene Peterson writes in, um, actually the introduction to the Gospel of Matthew from the message. He says, every day we wake up in the middle of something that is already going on, that has been going on for a long time genealogy and geology, history and culture, the cosmos, God. I know that that is probably very intuitive to a couple of you. It's probably counterintuitive to many of us. There is just this idea. This is why we feel such franticness. This is why we feel like if I don't answer my emails, is the world going to continue to turn in the sky? These are the things that we actually worry about. And it's because of how egocentric and central we've put ourselves in this whole thing. That somehow we're holding all these things together as opposed to like God's holding all these things together. The world's going to continue to spin. Every day you and I wake up and say it's been going on a long time. It predates all of us in here. It's going to go on long after us. Billions of people before and after. And we're just in this story. And ultimately, so then it's like, well, I can make this all about me and just getting my share and working as hard as I can to get what I want. Yeah, you can do that. Or you can understand that what God is doing in the world, as Jenny read to us so beautifully, God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but so that the world might be saved through him. That that's actually the story. That's the protagonist. That's what's going on. And I'm invited into that as a participant, a recipient, but also a pronouncer of that. That's what my life is about. My life, my sufferings, my trials, my, my triumphs, even my goodness and my badness, all of it exists for God. All of it exists for God. And therefore, my fittedness, my sense of rightness, my place of belonging in the story is not ultimately about what I have done or what I have earned, but it is about his decision to just simply offer it to me. And God is the hero in all of it. God is the giver in all of it. And we are just the ones to receive. 
which is the third point, that we enter into God's story uh, through belief, or another way to say it, we receive this gift of participation in the life of God. We receive this gift uh, through faith. Um, When we talk about faith and we talk about belief, these are abstract ideas. Um, Belief is not merely saying a thing. We could all stand up right now and say, we believe in God but have our life in no way support that idea, right? Because belief, if it's just words, it's just words. It doesn't mean anything. It's like saying, I love you, but then I actually never choose you first. I never put you above me. I never consider your needs before my own. Like, that's not actually love. That's just saying, like, uh, you make me feel good about myself and I'm around you, and so uh, that's how our relationship works. That's actually what we mean by I love you in that sense. To say that I have put my trust or my belief in God is to say that there is something fundamental inside of me that has chosen to rest some amount of strength or, or dependency on your promises, on your character, on who you say you are. And as a result of that, it has affected other parts of my life. For example, it's affected how I hold material possessions because I understand ultimately They're not mine to begin with. They've been given to me. It affects how I understand my own use of my body because I understand that my body is ultimately a gift to me as well that God has given. And so I listen to him when he tells me how to use it. In other words, trust and faith, when we talk about these words, when we say we enter God's story through belief or we receive the gift through faith, we're saying that there is something that is chosen internally, something that lives inside of me, but it has very real and external uh, consequences. Like Abraham. Like a person who was told, get up and move to a place that you do not know. And then he says, and I'm going to give you a son. He's like, I'm a hundred years old. He's like, I'm going to do an incredible thing through your hundred-year-old body and through your wife's 90-year-old body. And then after giving him the son, and the son is now in his teenage years, God says, go kill your son, which is shocking to us and should be. But in the day and age in which it was written, would not have been shocking was actually the way that you appease the God. What's incredible and so impressive and beautiful about Genesis 22 is that God stops Abraham. He says, no, don't kill your son. I, I just, I needed, I, but he's like, I wanted you to see how much your faith actually had moved out of your brain into your whole life. We enter into the story that God is inviting us into through belief, through faith. As we do it, we receive it. We receive the sense of belonging. We receive this place of reception. In the book of Hebrews, which is this really cool book in, in the New Testament, um, it's, written, it's written essentially to people who understood the Jewish system, the Jewish system of thinking, and it's very beautiful. But anyway, in Hebrews chapter 11, there is this just litany of people who are held forward to you and me as examples. People to, to, to look at and go, oh, they got it right. In other words, like they placed their faith with action in a thing. Like they really believed fully that God was able to do impossible things. And what's so incredible about Hebrews chapter 11 is it says at the end, and all of these died having not received the things that God promised them. Now, can, you, can I just like, ima- like imagine like that was the word spoken over you. God is calling you and me into a sort of life in which he is not promising this side of the grave to come through for us in all the ways that we think he should. All of these died, Hebrews says, but holds Abraham up. It says, here is a person who trusted God in incredible ways, trusted him with his son. And then it gets to Hebrews chapter 12, and we read this. Therefore, 
Since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, which I never knew what that meant when I was a kid, but what he's talking about there is he's saying, we have as a backstory, as a heritage, all these people who have got it right, who understood that the world that they lived in was not ultimately about them and that the story that they were invited into was a story about something greater than them, about God, that they could live in that story. And he's like, we're surrounded by a cloud of these people who understood this, a cloud of witnesses. Therefore, since we are surrounded by them, Let us, these are good Lenten words, let us lay aside every weight, all the extra stuff, the stuff that's keeping us from living fully into that story, the stuff that's preoccupying us, that's filling up our calendars. Let us lay aside the weight and the sin which so easily clings to us. And what that means for you, you probably know. And let us run. Let us run with perseverance. Let us not give in to to, to pain. You know, I mean, some of you in here are like me, you, you, you run. And like, so when you run, like you get to the place where your body says, and now it's time to stop. And then your brain says, not yet. And that's perseverance. Like when you just continue to push through like this hurts. Like I'm going to continue anyway. I'm not going to give up. I'm going to persevere through the discomfort because I know that actually there's the thing that I'm trying to get to is on the other side of the discomfort. And so let us run, he says, with perseverance. Let us not give up. Let us not be weak. Let us not fall down too easily. Let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us. How? This is the whole ball game, okay? How? Looking to Jesus, the pioneer and the perfecter of our faith, my eyes fixed on Jesus, who, for the joy set before him, endured the cross, disregarding its shame, and has taken his seat at the right hand, of the throne of God. What the writer of Hebrews is saying to you and me is that the way that we enter into this story, surrounded by all these witnesses, all these people who are saying like, you can do it. You're like, but it didn't work out so well for you. It's like, but it does in the end. You can do it. And so we're surrounded by all these people and they're saying, don't give up. Keep going. Even when it's hard, even when you fall down, stand up and you press on. You don't quit. How? I look to Jesus who did what? Who, endure, who persevered through the cross, who the maker of all things, his hands were helplessly pinned behind him to a Roman cross. And I looked to him who endured the cross doing what? What was he doing on the cross? This is so great. He was, it says, disregarding the shame. Now, I think disregard is too weak. It's, uh, it's how the NRSV does it. The Greek word, I always learned it was, was despise. Maybe that's familiar to you, despising the shame. The definition of that Greek word is this. Despising the shame is, let's go to the next slide. To consider something not important enough to be an object of concern when evaluated against something else. So Jesus Christ, naked and bleeding, gasping for breath, surrounded by ridicule, thieves hanging on either side of him, bleeding from all over, utterly, utterly stricken and forsaken in all ways. And it says that the shame that was coming at him, because that's what the cross is meant to do. That's why it exists. It's meant to shame you into death. It's a terrible and brutal way to die. And what's worse is that we understand from the Gospels that something even heavier, even heavier than gravity had been put on Jesus' back in this moment. His soul was languishing, a spiritual suffering that we cannot even imagine. The shame that he was experiencing, all the sin, all the death, all the hate, all the violence. And it says that he looked at the shame and he considered it not important enough to be an object of concern when compared with the value of something else. And what was that something else? Hebrews tells us, for the joy set before him, he disregarded, he despised the shame. What is the joy set before him? I've said this 
before in this church, but let me say it again. What is the joy? What did Jesus not have before the cross that he did have after the cross? It wasn't fellowship with the Father. He'd always had that. That had been forever. What did Jesus have after the cross that he did not have before the cross? You. You're the joy You're the object of greater concern than the shame that he was experiencing. He endures with joy to get you. One of the really cool things about my job is I get to watch, as a pastor, a lot of brides walk towards me. And that sounds weird, but but what it means is I get to to be front and center, inches away from from couples again and again and again. I got to do it again last night. It's the greatest thing. It's like right, you're right there in the action. And I'm standing there, you know, at the trolley barn in Inman Park, and there's this very wonderful nervous groom and all the wedding party looking fancy, and then here she comes. And every time I watch a bride walk towards me, um, I think about Jesus. Uh, because Jesus, at the end of our Bible, it says that he is like, he is the groom. And his deep desire and anticipation, the thing that he saw on the cross, that, he, that kept him on the cross, He did not have to stay on the cross. He says in the book of John, no one takes my life from me. I lay it down on my own accord. So he doesn't have to stay on the cross. The thing that keeps him on the cross is a vision in his mind of the bride, which in Revelation 21 says is you, is us, the bride coming to him and the joy of him embracing you, of answering that deep question of shame, of finally speaking an authoritative, definitive word over loneliness, over the thing that you and I have scraped our entire life to try to find an answer to, will be given and spoken over you. And Jesus willingly, eagerly chose to suffer so that he could speak that better word over you. And Paul says, this is what you and I are invited into to wrap our minds and our hearts and our bodies around it, that it's not about you. He's the hero, and yet you get all the benefit, the irony of it all. You and I, the degree to which we live in stories in which we are the protagonist in the center, to that degree we miss out on the joy that is actually available to us when we remove ourselves from the center because you and I were never meant to be in the center. It's not why we exist. We exist for another, and when he is where he belongs, you and I reap all the benefits, all the joy, Because things are finally just. They are right. They're as they're meant to be. Why don't we stand up together? We're going to pray a confession with one another. And this is not the words we normally pray together. It's something that uh, I actually wrote after writing my sermon this week that just kind of felt like what I wanted to say to God in this moment. And, and we did this at the last service, and, and um, I just we'll do it again here. So I just invite you to read along with me and the degree to which you can be present and just offer this as a prayer to God out of your own heart. Um, would you pray with me? I repent that I have listened to the voice of fear. I have given in to insecurity. I have embraced shame. And this has affected my whole life. How I see God. How I see myself. How I see others. In an effort to try to feel better about myself, I have made myself feel more important than others. I have spent my days pursuing my desires which I have misnamed as needs. 
And I have done this to the detriment of those around me. I am often preoccupied with myself, annoyed by inconveniences, generous only when it doesn't really cost me, patient when I have nothing better to do, compassionate when I think I might get something out of it. But rarely do I see others as truly valuable. Rarely do I consider another's life as seriously as my own. Furthermore, I have looked to you, God, to exist for my happiness. I am frustrated by your silence at times, confused by your felt absence, and angry that I cannot control you. I have tried to use you, and yet, at times, you have still moved towards me in grace, have still let me know your voice, have still spoken your love over me. I desire to live rightly, to trust you with my life, both the good and the bad. I desire to live in your story, believing that through Jesus I am free, forgiven, and invited into your story. In faith, I move towards you, knowing that even when I didn't want you, you first moved towards me. May Almighty God have mercy on us through Jesus Christ. May he strengthen us in goodness and by the power of the Spirit of God, may he keep us in eternal life. Amen. Amen. Jesus' word over you and me, his word is peace. Peace over our life, peace over our fear, over our anxiousness or circumstances, peace over coronavirus, peace over all of it. He speaks a better word over you. And so I say to you, may the peace of Christ be with you. Thank you so much for listening to today's sermon. I'm Matthew Brown, the parish pastor here at Trinity Indicator. At Trinity, our mission is to be a people who are growing into Christ-likeness. And you can learn more about Trinity and get plugged into the life of the church by visiting our website, atltrinity.org. Thank you so much, and God bless you. Have a great week.